In October uh, 2015, Pew Research Study indicated that 68% of Americans own a smartphone. I'm not going to ask you for a, a show of hands or have you pull them out or, or whatever, but uh, I imagine in this room there are many of us who have some kind of smartphone. Uh, another 45%, according to the same study, 45% of Americans have some sort of tablet that they use uh, regularly as well. So all of that uh, begs the question, what is your favorite app? Uh, do you have some, some apps that you use more often than others? Well, of course you do. There are probably a couple that are at the top of the list. If I were to ask you, the apps that you use most often, the ones you return to repeatedly over the course of a given week or even a given day, there's probably a couple of favorites that you have. Uh, for most people, for most Americans, the list of favorite applications that includes at least a couple of social media apps. So there's, there's the Facebooks and the Twitter and Instagram and those kinds of things. Um, many uh, Americans are using some sort of app on a regular basis for video, uh, video streaming. Maybe you have Netflix or you just use YouTube. Uh, a lot of people are streaming music on their phones now through apps like Pandora or Spotify. Uh, maybe you even have some games that you like to play. Uh, maybe, you know, you get bored and you, you pull out if it's Solitaire or if it's Stack or you might even be into, you know, Pokemon Go. That's like the thing now, all right? So um, maybe, maybe that's kind of like you have a favorite game that you, that you play. Uh, for me, one of the, some of the apps I use most uh, frequently are, you know, kind of boring, but they're just u- the utility apps. Uh, I use things like uh, my map feature. Uh, a couple times a week, every day I'll get up and check the weather, you know, it's just like we have, we have so many of these, these applications that we go back to over and over. Uh, have you ever wondered, what is it that makes an app successful? You know, what, what is it that, that the, the tech designers, those tech gurus are going for when they design uh, an app? Well, an app is considered successful if, if it hooks you and if it, it keeps you on the hook by having you use it re- repeatedly. Uh, some app designers actually have a word for this. They call it captology, C-A-P-T-O-L-O-G-Y, captology, or just basically uh, the art of capturing people's attention and making it hard for them to escape. In a book entitled Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, a Stanford professor and game designer by the name of Nir Eyal, he explains why applications like Facebook are so effective. A successful app, he says, creates a persistent routine, and along with that persistent routine comes a behavioral loop. So the idea there is that we want to we uh, attach certain behaviors to that app. He writes, uh, feelings of boredom, loneliness, frustration, confusion, even indecisiveness will often instigate a slight pain or an irritation. And it will prompt an almost instantaneous and often mindless, oftentimes mindless action to quell the negative sensation. Gradually, these bonds cement into a habit as users turn to your product when experiencing those internal triggers. So you know how this works. You're at the grocery store, and you happen to be standing in a, really, in a long line, and that line's going nowhere, right? And maybe you look up front and you see the, the, the lady who's paying, she actually she pulls out her checkbook and she's got to write a check, you know. And so you know, used to, that would be kind of like this eye-rolling moment. You're like, no, I chose the wrong line, you know. You're checking to see where you would have been in the other lines if you had chosen, you know, more wisely. Um, used to, like back then, if you were just you're stuck in that spot, what, what are your options, you know? You, you look to the right, you look at the candy bars, or you turn left and look at the National Enquirer and all that kind of stuff. Well, now, nowadays, what do you do? 
You're stuck in line. There's this instant sort of knee-jerk. Well, I'll just pull my phone out of my pocket or out of your purse. And you just begin to sort of mindlessly, to fend off the boredom or, or maybe the rage because you're in such a hurry, you know, to fend off whatever negative feeling you're, you're experiencing. We pull out our phones and we, and we scroll through some of those favorite apps. A successful app, according to the tech guru, a successful app does four things. It triggers some sort of perceived need in me, the need to be constantly stimulated, to constantly have something going on to entertain my mind. It provides a, a momentary solution to that need. It captures our attention, and then finally makes it hard for us to escape. So here's the hook. That, that, that's the recipe for a successful app. And I believe that the idols in our culture do precisely the same thing. I believe that the idols that are, are prevalent in our culture today, those idols are great. Those idols are experts at captology. <laughs> now, those idols are great at capturing our attention, making it difficult for us to escape. The idols that permeate, the counterfeit gods that permeate in our culture are great at, at triggering some sort of perceived need in our lives and providing an immediate kind of solution to that. I suspect that for most of us, when we hear the talk of, of idols and idolatry, we think of idolatry the same way we think of things like 8-track players and uh, dial-up internet. We think of those things as things of the past. Right? Uh, we think of those things as things that no longer really have much bearing on our lives, but I disagree. I, I believe that idolatry is, is as rampant today as it ever has been. In fact, I would go so far as to say that, that idolatry... Idolatry is the fundamental problem in our lives. Idolatry is certainly the fundamental problem in the pages of God's Word. You go from Old Testament to New Testament, you spend some time you know, reading what God has revealed here to us, it's easy to see that idolatry is, is the primary problem that God's people in the Old Testament were facing, that Israel dealt with on a continual, perpetual sort of basis. And even when you get to the pages of the New Testament, you find that same language applied to the problems that the Christians faced in the early church. It's idolatry. Somebody has said that there are somewhere around a thousand references in the Bible to idolatry. I can't verify that exact number, but here's what I can tell you. There are 764 references to idols, images, gods, goddesses, Baal, and Asherah in the NIV translation of the Bible. 764 of those. And I know that because I counted them all. And eventually I got kind of tired of, of counting. Uh, there, there, there may be other words, you know, graven image, I didn't look that one up. There may be other words that, that you could add to the list that refer to idols in the pages of Scripture. So it may be close to a thousand references. But here's what, I, here's what we know. God's Word is littered with references, with warnings against idolatry. One of the most succinct is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. It just says simply, flee from idolatry. So, so if we see in Scripture something that from cover to cover is a persistent problem, and we see somewhere around, let's just say a thousand references in the Bible about idolatry, don't you think we would do well to be on guard against that threat as well. Uh, the, the place that idolatry really comes to the forefront first in, in God's Word 
is in the book of Exodus, and in particular as you get to the Ten Commandments. Uh, The first two of those Ten Commandments deal with idolatry. It says in Exodus 20, verses 3 and 4, You shall have no other gods before me, and then also you shall not make for yourself an idol. Just to set the stage there from Exodus 20, God spoke those words directly to the children of Israel. They're gathered there at the base of Mount Sinai, and God speaks those Ten Commandments directly to Israel. At the end of that, after, after God finishes speaking, Israel is so fearful. I mean, it is such a fearful experience to hear the voice of God like that. Israel says to Moses, um, can we come up with a, with a different plan? <laughs> Here's what we suggest. You go on the mountain and talk to God yourself, and then you come back and tell us what he said. But we don't really want to hear God's voice again like that. It says in Exodus 20, verse 19, do not have God speak to us or we will die. So Moses goes back up the mountain, and he's there, and he receives the word of God. He receives these commands, the law that we see there, the Mosaic law as it's referred to, and he's on the mountain for 40 days. And so 40 days go by, and the the children of Israel are are down at the base of the mountain, and no sign from Moses. At the end of that 40-day period, Israel, Israel begins to get restless, and they begin to, to clamor for something it would capture their attention. They have a perceived need, a need for a God who is tangible, a need for a God who is present, a God who doesn't, who doesn't hide in the, in the mountains and the clouds, but instead they want a visible representation of that God because, I believe, because that God is way more controllable than the God they're left with, the lively, fearful, awesome God who's up on the mountain. And so, out of this perceived need, they come to Aaron, and they say to Aaron in Exodus 32, verse 1, come, make us gods who will go before us. Now again, remember, only 40 days prior, God himself has spoken to the people and said, don't worship an idol. Whatever you do, command number one, I don't want any false, I don't want anything to come before me in your life. I don't want you to bow down and worship any other image. Forty days, and they forget. Forty days, and they kind of shrug their shoulders and say, eh. It was 38 days ago that the college football season kicked off. Remember how excited you all were? You know, the first Thursday night, oh, college football is back. 38 days ago. Imagine on that night, God spoke something directly to us, and we come in here today and we kind of just say, eh, I don't know, it's kind of a long time. And that's five weeks and change. Maybe he didn't really mean it. Let's come up with plan B. That's what's happening here in this passage of Scripture. And so Aaron, in a moment of incredibly weak leadership, Aaron says to the people, well, bring me your gold. You know, when they left Egypt, they received gold. And so he says, bring me the gold that that you have. And so he melts that down, he fashions it into a golden calf, and then Aaron says this in Exodus 32, verse 4, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And in the next breath, after building an, an altar before the calf, Aaron then announces this. He says, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. And it goes on to say that the next day the people rose early, they sacrificed burnt offerings, fellowship offerings, and then afterward they sat down to eat and drink and to indulge in revelry, which is 
about as provocative as the Bible's going to get in talking about that. It was, it was, basically, it was basically a free-for-all. Anything goes. Aaron has replaced the Lord God with a counterfeit God, with a, a lesser God, with, with something other than the ultimate reality. God is the ultimate reality. I mean, there, there's nothing else that God pre-exists the created order as we know it. Therefore, it is sinful for us to take anything else, any person, anything, any object, and make it ultimate. That's why God doesn't have any sort of representation in the Old Testament. You see all these other false gods, all these other idols, and they, they, they take on different forms. But, but the throne atop the, the Ark of the Covenant for Israel that is made from the wings of the angels, it remains empty. Not because the throne is empty, but because no image would do him justice. And so we see here uh, in, in Aaron's, again, leadership, he's taking, he's taking the Lord God and he's replacing him with this golden calf. And that's a great picture for us of, of what idolatry really is. Because idolatry, it, it takes place anytime we replace God by ascribing ultimate significance to anything else. To any person, to any object, to any ideology. All of that happens. So just like a, a successful app, what happens here is the image of this golden calf, which Israel no doubt picked up and witnessed there in Egypt, the image of this golden calf both triggers a need for a controllable, visible God and also provides an immediate solution to that. And perhaps worst of all, worst of all, Aaron points to that thing and says, this is your God. Never mind that voice that you heard, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, right? No, this is your God, so bow down and worship this, Aaron says. Rather than worshiping the one true and living God, Israel has, has adopted a more piecemeal, hodgepodge, grab bag approach to spirituality here. Yeah, we'll let that God stay up on the mountain. Give me this controllable little golden calf that I can worship. So that's idolatry, a snapshot at least, of idolatry in the Old Testament. Many of us have heard this before. Maybe you've even seen the movie. <laughs> Doesn't sound all that, um, um, all that crazy to us, but, but let's face it. There is a bit of, of this that's a, little, it's a little bit inaccessible to us. Because of all the temptations that we have, all the things that, that we struggle with, you know, I'm, I'm not sure where Baal worship would fall for you, you know. Uh, prob it's probably not making the top ten. So we, we may have a bit of a disadvantage. When we read this, we may think, well, you know, yeah, that was kind of silly to fashion something and say, hey, this is God and bow down before it. But that's not all the Bible has to say about idolatry. We see the pages of the New Testament. We see the same warnings against idolatry. Now, again, uh, they're not focused on the worship of, of Baal in this particular form, at least. But we do find in the book of Colossians, from the pen of the Apostle Paul, a warning against idolatry. You'll see it on the screen. You can follow along there in your Bibles as well if you'd like. Colossians 3, 1 through 10, we'll, we'll read all of this just to get the context for, for where Paul is, is, is taking us here. This is God's word. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. You're not, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature sexual immorality, impurity, lust, 
evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So Paul teaches that we should set our minds on things above, that we should not set our minds on those earthly things, but rather our hearts and our minds should be fixated and focused on the things that are above, on things that are eternal. And, and here are some of the earthly things he says we should set our minds against. Again, it's sexual immorality and impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. And in God's word, there's a special effort that is made to identify these uh, activities, these perspectives, setting your mind on these things, all of that, it's idolatry, the word says. There's a special effort to note that those practices can become idolatrous if they're unchecked. So greed and sexual sin, and even these things listed in verse 8, anger and rage and malice and slander, if they become ultimate, if they take on a life of their own in, in our particular lives, then they can become idolatrous kinds of practices. They can consume us. How many people have you known who have just been consumed with anger? It's almost as if the pursuit of, of living out some sort of angry fantasy becomes ultimate for them. It can become an idol in our lives if we're not careful. Same thing with sexual immorality. The same thing with greed. With all of these, the Word of God points out far more than just golden calves with horns. We look at that and we think, how unsophisticated is that? But the Word of God says idols run much deeper in our culture. And we need to be on guard against them. So, so, today, so today we begin a, a new series. Today we begin a series entitled Counterfeit Gods. And the aim of this series is, is for us to spend the next several weeks just looking at what God's Word has to say about some of those, some of those dangerous counterfeit gods, those dangerous idols in our lives. We understand that this is counterfeit gods with a, with a small g. You know, this is counterfeit gods in the sense of those, those threats to, to who God has called us to be. Um, we've been talking all year about what it means for us to put love first. So if we're going to do that, part of that is to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to have no other gods before him, so if that's the case, don't, don't you think it's wise for us to spend a little bit of time talking about some of the prevalent threats to that love, to, to putting God first? Some of the ways in which our culture tempts us to replace the supremacy that only God deserves and to, to put something else, someone else, anything else on the throne of our lives. That's really at the heart of where we'll spend the next couple of weeks together. So as we do that, as we, as we kick off this series today in the, in the time I've got remaining, I just want to lay out a couple of, of undergirding principles here. These are the kinds of things that will just sort of anchor us as we go through this study for the next couple of weeks on the counterfeit gods in our culture. Uh, the first is, is this. Anything can become an idol. Anything can become an idol, a counterfeit god, in our lives. It was nearly 500 years ago that John Calvin famously said that the human heart is an idol-making factory. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think we have an incredible capacity 
to take anything, good, bad, or otherwise, to take anything and to fixate on it to the degree that it becomes idolatrous in our lives. Uh, That's because we have this innate impulse to ascribe value to something. We are all made for worship. We're made for it. We talked about what it means to be a worshiping people a couple of weeks ago, and to worship just means to ascribe value to. It comes in English from that, that word, meaning to, to, uh, to make something worthy, to consider something worth your time, your energy, your effort. And so we are, we are all wired to find something to center our lives around. All of us, even the most secular person in a particular uh, culture, will find some way to order his or her life. And whatever it is, whatever that ordering principle is, whatever it is that is at the center of your life, that will be, in essence, what you worship. Because that is what gives your life purpose and meaning and direction. And so all of us, we, we may not find ourselves bowing down, again, before a golden calf, okay? But how many of us, for instance, bow down and worship before the false god of body image? We live in a culture that is fixated on body image, on being young and looking young. When there's an entire industry built around anti-aging products and surgeries, and the whole concept is just literally absurd when you think about it. Because no matter what, you, you cannot anti-age. It's impossible. You're aging. Even right now, you can't anti-age. But this is the God of our culture. How many of us give in to that and bow down and worship? Not the golden idol of Baal, but the God of body image. You know, we, we don't talk about eating disorders. But that is a real thing in this culture. It's particularly among our our young ladies, you know? So, so what do we do in a world where the counterfeit gods present themselves that way? Where our young ladies can't walk past any magazine without being confronted with this, this whole deal of like, you've got to look this way or else you're not as valuable. Your worth just isn't quite there. Conversely, you know, how many of we're not bowing down before the golden image of Baal and singing songs to him, but how many of us, how many of us are just given in to some form of, of addiction in our lives? How many of us are, are addicted to pornography? Something else we don't talk about a lot, but it's prevalent in our culture. And the damaging effects that that has on, on men and just the way that we view ourselves and others or believe that's a counterfeit God in our culture. Substance abuse can take on a life of its own. I, I, read, I read one author this week who said, I realized I was an alcoholic the day that I took the recycling bin out to the curb and I saw the carnage of just how much I'd been drinking that week. And I, and I live alone, he said. And I, said I realized I've got a problem. And so we, we understand how our, 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 our culture works. We understand how those kinds of things can be harmful and destructive. And yes, the, the, those have always been uh, counterfeit gods and idols that God's people have been, have been prone to giving into. But, but you know what Satan will do? Is, I mean, if you give him one of those areas of your heart and your life, he'll take it and he'll run rampant with it. But you know what? Satan is so great at also taking good things in our lives and perverting them and twisting them and using them for his purposes. So even good things like family. Family is a really good life-giving thing. 
But for some of us, it may not be any of these things I've been talking about over here the last couple of minutes, but it might be something as simple as family has taken on a life of its own and has been placed in the, in the seat of supremacy in your heart and in your life in a place that's only reserved for God. And Satan is using that good thing for his purposes to take away from your love for God because you love your family more than you love the Lord. Or work. Work is a really good thing. God's Word has lots of good, affirming things to say about work, about the accumulation of wealth and using that for God's purposes. But if that takes on a life of its own, Satan uses that and perverts that and twists that, and he's just made a counterfeit God. Relationships. I mean, we could do this all day. All of these things God's Word says is really, really, those things are really good and life-giving. But if they remain unchecked, they remain unchecked, then what we've done is we've created a counterfeit God, and we've made those things idolatrous in our lives. The full text of the verse I read to you a moment ago from Exodus 20, verse 4 Uh, speaks to this as well. Again, the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. And then the Lord adds this, in heaven above, on earth beneath, or in the water below. The Lord gives his people this exhaustive command uh, not to make an idol out of anything. But that very teaching implies this, does it not? That we are capable of turning anything into an idol, into a false god. If If we will let Satan run rampant there, Any good thing, bad thing, or something indifferent can become a counterfeit God in our lives. As Timothy Keller says, if anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, your meaning in life, and your identity, then that is an idol. So anything can become an idol. Uh, Secondly, counterfeit gods always disappoint. (laughs) That may be another one of those things where it's sort of like, Well, yeah, that seems obvious to say, but it's worth saying here on the front end because if we're going to talk about these counterfeit gods, we need to be sure that we're also saying that these counterfeit gods are always going to lead to disappointment. Idolatry will always lead to disappointment because idolatry is living in the wrong story. We weren't made to center our lives around anything other than the Lord God. On the first page of of the scriptures, we see this truth that we are made in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. We are made to bear the image of God. That means we're made for life with God. And when Jesus speaks about what that life looks like, the language he uses is language of love. He says when your life is centered around God, it looks like this, Mark 12. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And so a life centered around God, a life that it is living in the fullness of the image with which we were created, is a life of love. It is a life devoted to God, a life where God is at the center. We are a Christ-centered people, as we said a few weeks ago. Anything else? Anything else will be put in, in, in the central position in our lives. Anything else will lead to dissatisfaction. We, ultimately, we will not be satisfied with anything less than God at the center of our lives. Uh, In May of 2015, Sports Illustrated named Ronda Rousey the world's most dominant athlete. She'd had quite a run up until that point. She was the first U.S. woman ever to win an Olympic medal in judo. She was consistently ranked one of the top three judo champions in the world before she transitioned into mixed martial arts, also known as MMA. Uh, And she quickly dominated there as well, became uh, a world champion. 
Uh, going into November 2015, she had a 12-0 record, 12 wins, zero losses, uh, 12-0 record as an MMA fighter. And get this, only one challenger, only one fighter had ever even survived the first round against her. I mean, she's knocking people out left and right, okay? Uh, of those 12 victories, eight of those challengers were defeated in less than a minute. That means from the time I started this illustration to right now, she would have defeated eight people, okay? Um, and then in November of 2015, something unexpected happened. Ronda Rousey lost. But she didn't just lose, she lost badly. And she gave an interview not too long after that. And I want you to hear what, what she said about this devastating loss. She says, I was literally sitting there thinking about killing myself. And at that exact moment, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I even do anymore? No one cares about me anymore without this. For Ronda Rousey, this was the title of the world's most dominant athlete. This was the status of being the undisputed champion. This was this, this image that she could project of success and achievement that gave her life purpose and meaning and value. And when you strip that away from her, she was left with this feeling of, of being dissatisfied and disappointed because you know what? Every single counterfeit God will leave you feeling that way because you weren't made to worship that. You were made to worship God. So all of those things that fall into that category of this, without this, I'm nothing. Man, if I, if I just had this, if I just had this relationship, if I just had this job, if I just had this car, if I just had this much money in the bank, all of that, all of that, that's language that leads to making a counterfeit God in your heart. Instead, we've learned to be content in all circumstances because we're in Christ. And there's nothing that can change his supremacy in, in, in the heart of my, my being. If I've said Jesus Christ is Lord, then that's a promise that is greater than anything any of these other counterfeit gods can even remotely offer. Everything else is just going to lead us to feeling disappointed. It was in his classic work, Mere Christianity, that C.S. Lewis said, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy... The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And that's, in essence, what the writer of Ecclesiastes says at the end of, of Ecclesiastes. Uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes, he's tasted all the counterfeit gods, all the things that, that the world can throw at you, all the things we'll talk about in this series, you know, riches and power and pleasure and success, you know, all of that. Wisdom, he's had it all. He's been there, he's done it, he's got the t-shirt to prove it, and he walks away saying, you know what? At the end of the day, that stuff, his favorite word, is meaningless. You, know, you, you, like, you need to be ready before you dive into Ecclesiastes because you walk away like reevaluating your life because he is just like hammering. It's like that stuff is just meaningless. Meaningless, meaningless, it's vanity. He says it's nothing if you've, tried, if you've made that ultimate in your life. There's no meaning there. It's a cul-de-sac. It's a dead end. And he closes with this little postscript, which is about the most, most positive thing he has to say. In light of all that, now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. He says, you want to know what life is all about. It's about the fear of the Lord. 
making a difference in your life, walking in obedience to him. He said, everything else, everything else just doesn't matter. I've, I've put everything else at the center, and I've walked away unsatisfied. Empty calories. It's like eating a Big Mac, you know? It's empty calories. What's life-giving is to feast at the banquet table of the Lord. Fear him and keep his commandments. So those counterfeit gods, you know, anything can be an idol. Those counterfeit gods will leave us feeling disappointed. And then and we'll close here with this point. This is a, a good place for us to, to finish up for today. I want you to know this, that, that God is able to cleanse us of our idols. The purpose of this series is to, to expose those counterfeit gods for what they are. The purpose of this series is to, to name those false gods, those, those temptations that we, we are surrounded by in our culture. We want to name those because there's power in that. But ultimately, the, the, the move here is not just to like spend a lot of time wallowing around talking about the, the false gods of our culture, but to say, if those are present in your life, if those are temptations that we deal with on a regular basis, on a limited basis, whatever, to whatever degree they are there, know this, that the promise of God is that he is present and he is powerful. He is able to cleanse us from these idols. We, we find this promise over in the, the book of Ezekiel. I wish we had a lot more time to, to unpack this, but we'll, we'll close here with, with this. From Ezekiel 36, God makes this promise to his people, uh, Israel. He says to them, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all impurities, and get this line, and from all of your idols. I'll give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove you uh, from you, your heart of stone, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. God promises Israel that he will bring cleansing. He'll he'll give a new spirit, and that new spirit will give a new heart, replacing that, that heart of stone there. And the cleansing includes being cleansed of these impurities and of these idols. There is no idol in Israel that God could not overcome. When God comes to Israel and he says, you shall have no other gods before me, he's not operating out of some sort of defensive posture. God's not operating from this place of being threatened by those false gods because he knows they're nothing. They're nothing. He just wants Israel to have the best life possible. And he knows that, again, you weren't created to worship that golden calf. Instead, you were made in my image. You're created for life with me. And so there's no God... There's no God, lowercase g, there's no counterfeit God, no idol that is so great that God cannot overcome it in Israel's day. And there's no God, no idol, so great in my life and in this culture that God cannot also overcome it. There's no temptation that you're dealing with that God hasn't forgiven millions of times, billions of times over the course of human history. There's not one. And through the power of his spirit, the promise here is that God will cleanse us and liberate us from our idols. If there are some idols present in your life that you need to repent of, hear again the promise of God that he will cleanse of all impurity, of all idols. There's some things you need to tear down, some idols you need to deconstruct, and we can help with that through prayer, through listening, through through being a shoulder you can lean on. I hope you'll do something about that right now. You can respond in a moment by walking down this aisle and, and talking with one of the shepherds that you'll see down front here. You'll also see them in the back of the room and upstairs as well. They're there because they, they just want to be 
they want to be shepherds in your life. And so if they can bless you in, in that way, please, um, please come and share your heart with them. But today, perhaps for the first time ever, you need to tear down the idol of, uh, of self-centeredness, of selfish ambition, all those things that we talked about there in that Philippians passage that Dr. Moore read for us. Maybe today you need to humble yourself to receive the gift of salvation that is found only in Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to stand before men and confess the name of Jesus, put Christ on in baptism, and begin that life of following after him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If so, we would love to encourage you in that way as well. If we can help in any way, we stand ready. He stands ready. Let's sing our song together. My heart.